Well, good morning. How are we doing? It is good to see you. Thank you for being here. Welcome here. And I want to welcome uh, those watching online. And I, I want to give a special welcome uh, to those of you watching online from a church right up the road, Eagles View. Thank you for tuning in with us today. I know that your, your live feed is coming here, and we just want to welcome you. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're Creek family. You're, you're the family of God today. And uh, I just want to say this about your pastor. He's an amazing man of God, and I am blessed to call him a friend, and uh, you have an amazing church, and I can't wait. The, uh, Eagles View is getting ready to open a new space, and so uh, they're getting everything ready for that to happen, and so can we just stop and pray for them, because we've gone through construction, and we know that, so can we just pray for them? So Father, we just lift up uh, Pastor Bart, we lift up Eagles View, we lift up the leadership and every person in the church. And God, we just pray for an anointing and a blessing uh, in this construction process. We pray for your favor on opening. And God, we just thank you that, that we will see the kingdom impacted in our community in an even greater way. And we love you. We give you the honor for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love that we have relationships with churches in our community. I've never experienced that in a community before. But we have, just so you know, uh, there's over 30 pastors and churches in our community that we partner together. Um, we focus on how do we build the kingdom, not just how do we build a church. Because the name on a building, that's, that, that, that's irrelevant to Jesus. He builds his body, amen? So I'm, I'm just grateful for that. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we're in a series called Life and Death, and I know that it's kind of a tough subject to kind of go into right as we go into a season of Thanksgiving and then a season of Christmas um, but the death is a reality of life and, and how we approach things. And a lot of times we get into fear about uh, what happens and, and we, we end up under this. The Bible says it's a fear of death that comes from, from the devil himself. And how do we navigate this? And, and how do we navigate even Jesus coming to the point of his own death, his crucifixion and resurrection? Because that is the central hope that we have, that he who was crucified was resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we can have life and life in his name. And so uh, we were looking at a scene with Jesus in a little town called Bethany where a friend of his had died, Lazarus had died, and Martha and Mary are his sisters, and they come out to meet him. And um, uh, we, we start out, uh, I started this last week and we didn't get through it all, so we'll get through it all today. Uh, but let me give you a little recap. So verse 28 of chapter 11 uh, says this, says, um, uh, when she had said this, when Martha had said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe you're the, the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. After she had said this and made that proclamation of her faith in Jesus, uh, she went to her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And, and, and this teaching through this passage uh, this time is called Jesus is Calling, and uh, Jesus is calling, and, and, and he has something for Mary, he has something for Martha, he has something for Lazarus, he also has something for us, and, and, and there's some, some notes that we need to kind of take away in this, and so Mary finds out that Jesus is calling for, and then in verse 32, he says, now when Mary came to Jesus, uh, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, now, this is the only recorded words we have of Mary in the Gospels, and, and we find Mary in a position of worship. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus, um, but she brings the pain. I love, that. I love that we see the kind of just the raw emotion in this. She brings the pain. She's at the feet of Jesus, and, and she says, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think there's a lot of faith in that statement because she's recognizing that the presence of Jesus in there would have done something. We would have a different outcome. 
And we've asked that question in one shape or form in our life. You know, sometimes we, 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 we come at him with anger. We say, God, if you would have been here, you would have done something. You should have done something about this. I mean, you just spend any amount of time turning on the news and you see, you see tragedy after tragedy. You see all the chaos. You see all the heaviness. You see all the brokenness. And, and, and we can sit back and we can reason, well, there can't be a God because he's allowing all this to happen. If he's a good God and a loving God, why is everything broken? And so what we'll do is we'll take that anger and that will kind of just callous our heart to where we just walk away and we'll never see God moving in the brokenness. We'll never see God doing a work through the pain. But Mary is in a place of worship and Jesus calls us to worship. He calls us to worship in all circumstances, in everything, when it's heavy and when it's good. I mean, in, in the good times, we praise him because he's good. In the tough times, we praise him because he's still good. Yes, he is a good and loving God. And his heart is broken for this world that is broken, but that's why he sent Jesus. So he does have a remedy. He does have a hope. He does have a plan, and he does have a purpose, and he calls us to worship. I told you last week that I would, I would share with you some bonus material on this, this worship, and so we're going to jump into chapter 12 of John. Um, it says six days before the Passover. So this, this is right before Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples that would lead into the last week of his life, ultimately his, his death, burial, resurrection. And so before the Passover, he, he stops in at Bethany. Jesus was, therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Spoiler alert, if you've never heard this story, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So I just kind of jumped ahead in time a little bit. But Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. And Martha was serving. That's kind of her normal. She was the busy, busy person getting everything ready. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. I, I think that's funny. Can you imagine the conversation that Lazarus is having with Jesus at that table? Hey, Jesus, I just need to talk to you about something. I mean, you know, I, I'm grateful you called me back from the dead, but, but do you realize I was in heaven? I mean, four days, I was just getting settled into my mansion, figuring out where the pictures were gonna go on the wall, moving stuff around. I'm in perfectness. My shoulder didn't hurt anymore. I, my knees didn't hurt. I didn't have any aches. I mean, there was no pain, no crying. It was perfect. I was walking the streets of gold, and the presence of God was incredible, and then all of a sudden... An angel knocked on my door, Jesus, and says, uh, Lazarus, we don't normally do this, but we got to send you back. And Lazarus like, say what? You know that feeling when you think you've gotten away with something and all of a sudden you don't? Like, we had a situation the other day with a police officer, but I got away with it. Um, but I... But it's that thing where you're like, I probably shouldn't have done that. I, I mean, I, 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 I was in the wrong, and I went right by a police officer, and Heather's watching. She's like, he's going to turn on his lights any minute. And I'm thinking, should I just pull over? No, I ain't pulling over until the lights come on. You know, like, you know and, and the hard part is it was coming into our neighborhood, so then all my neighbors are going to see me get pulled over in front of my house. And I'm thinking, man, how do I do this? Because you don't want to go to another neighbor's house, right? You know, like, I'm going to go. There's another Creek family that lives in the neighborhood. I should have pulled in front of his house. They're like, I don't know, what's, what was going on at your house, you know? But uh, so Lazarus is like, you know, we're sending you back, back to the Middle East with no air conditioning. Have fun, you know. And uh, so I just imagine that conversation because like Jesus, that was in perfection, man. And then you're like, Lazarus, come out. Like, why? So I'm sure there was some, I think Jesus has a sense of humor. I mean, he created me. So, I mean, I know he's got a sense of humor. But then, then in verse 3, it says, Mary, um, therefore, took 
uh, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here again, we see Mary worshiping. I mean, she worshiped Jesus when Lazarus was dead and she's worshiping when Jesus was, Lazarus was alive and Jesus had called him out of the tomb. I mean, and so she, she has reason to worship on both sides. And she comes in and this, this, this anointing perfume was used for the, the anointing the bodies of the dead. And Mary isn't one of the women who came to the tomb on the first day of the week on resurrection morning to anoint the body. She was anointing him and worshiping before his crucifixion. She was kind of getting ahead of it. And it's interesting because Mary, this posture, it's a posture of a servant. Because she's at his feet and she's saying, I'm humbling myself to you. And then she's pouring this, this perfume, this expensive perfume. You're going to see in a minute that's about 300 days salary for them. And she's pouring it on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair. What an act of worship. And Mary, see, here's the thing that we can learn about worship. Worship is gonna cost us something. Mary was bringing her best to the feet of Jesus. And when we worship Jesus, it's gonna cost us something. I mean, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. That means I, gotta, I, I can't give in to my selfish desires. I've got to just, I have to realize I'm not living for myself. I'm living for a greater purpose. I'm living a life because he's given it to me. And so I'm denying myself these appetites. And I struggle with that because I got a healthy appetite for a lot of things. You know, I've been working out. And, and I'm feeling I'm getting stronger, but I'm just, I'm not seeing some change in every part of my body, um, but that comes down to diet, right? Because some of y'all have a genetic mutation or defect where you like healthy stuff, you know? I've eaten with y'all at restaurants. I'll just have the quinoa salad. Nah, give me beef. Give me pork. Give me bacon. A slab of bacon. I want full butter biscuit. You know, I mean, give me gravy. I want gravy so thick you could use it for axle grease. I mean, I just give me the healthy stuff. You know, I, I have a tendency to eat unhealthy. And then I pray before that meal. Jesus, bless this meal because I'm just going to see you sooner. You know, you know but hey, I'm coming home, Jesus, fat and happy. But uh, what was I saying? Oh, it, worship cost us. So there are decisions that we make. And Jesus said, deny himself. Take up your cross daily. The cross is a device. I know it's this cute jewelry on your neck, but it's a device of execution. It should be a reminder that I have been crucified with Christ. I've given my life to him. It's not me who lives, but it's him who lives within me. And this life I live in the flesh, Paul would say, I live by faith for the glory of God. So worship costs us something. When I made decisions about following Jesus, I lost friends. There are people that, that criticize. There are people that ridicule. I remember my transition from the corporate world and, and God calling me into ministry and sitting down with my boss. And they had just offered me this promotion and I had to sit down and tell him, I can't take this and here's why. And I can't repeat to you what he said to me in his office. The gist of it was says, are you crazy? And I looked at him, I said, I may be, but I know with every fiber in my being that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And when you make a decision to follow Jesus, it's gonna cost you. We live in a world that is, is anti-Christ. It is anti-kingdom. It is anti-God. And when we as Christ followers live in a world that is broken, it doesn't mean that we have, we have the answer. I mean, some people think that because I've given my life to Christ that my life should go perfectly. And just, just read the Bible. That's not the truth. 
I mean, sometimes following Jesus is harder for me than not because it means I have to make decisions that, that sacrifice myself for his glory, that I serve him. I have to give up things that I want so that he can be glorified and he can be magnified. And Mary, is, this worship is costing her, but there's always going to be a critic. Whenever you see someone giving their best and most for God, there's gonna be somebody on the sidelines criticizing them. And I've learned something that every one of us has, has critics. I mean, I, I get a good dose of criticism regularly, but I've learned the difference. You need to weigh those, those opinions because a, a coach, there's a difference, a coach and a critic. A coach wants to build you up because they care for you and they wanna see you succeed. A critic just wants to tear you down to build themselves up. But there's always gonna be somebody on the side. It's Judas in this case. Look at verse four. It says um, when Mary's doing, doing this and she's worshiping Jesus, but Judas Iscariot, one of, the, the, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, so, so here you, Judas kind of makes a valid argument, right? He's looking at this going, that's, that's 300 days salary for the average working man. And you're just pouring it on the feet of Jesus. That could be used so much to do so much for so many people. And so you can kind of go with this train of thought a little bit, right? Because you think, yeah, I mean, what, this, this whole idea of giving into the things of God, that you give it to Jesus when there's all these needs. And here's what I would say in that. The church, that when people give to the church, we take it very seriously. We, we, we work very hard to be a good steward. And you are a generous church. And we're able to do things in our community. I mean, we're, we're providing Christmas to over 200 children in our district because their parents are stressing and with, with the way things are right now, like we just don't know how we're gonna get this done. And it's the most kids we've ever had in our history and we actually spent time in our meeting going, God, how do we do this? And God brought a peace on us. He goes, you just steward what I give you. Don't worry, I got this. And, and listen, if you don't trust a church with your money, then I, I was there. I carry some of the same baggage y'all do. But I would say this, if you're going to put your money into community and into helping people, put it somewhere that's got a gospel initiative. It's not philanthropy for Jesus. It is putting the money somewhere where the gospel can change lives because Jesus, Jesus is going to speak to this. But you think Judas, okay, he's, he's on to something, but here's, we get to see his heart. Judas said this, verse six, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So he's looking at that going, man, I could skim the top of that easily. Here we see his heart, Judas's heart. And Jesus can perceive the heart of man. And I think, I think it's interesting because we get into this, uh, I'm gonna step into some dangerous territory, but I feel like we need to go there. Um, we tend to throw everything out about Judas because he was a betrayer and he was a thief and he betrayed Jesus. And I'm not going on a I'm for Judas campaign here, but what I'm just saying is we've gotta be cautious about our attitude in the kingdom and in the body. Because Jesus knew the heart of Judas and he still called him to follow him knowing the outcome. Jesus still anointed Judas to go out with the other disciples. He anointed all 12 of them and sent them out in pairs and said, go into the communities and prepare for my coming. Go preach the kingdom. Go heal the sick and cast out the demons. And the disciples, it says the disciples came back. It didn't say 11 of them. Judas wasn't one of them. The disciples came back saying, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
Jesus was, 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 Judas, was using Judas and still anointing him, knowing the outcome. And we've got to be careful about this cancel culture infiltrating, infiltrating the church and the kingdom because people are flawed. People are broken. And we get into this process as we throw, we throw everything out because of their decision. And we've got to, listen, we, we do have to discern and we do have to be on guard. But listen, we're people of God. We also have to have grace. And not just, just I mean, not just be what I, I called the church growing up. It's an army who shoots their wounded. But we've got to work in grace. And, and here's how I would say we handle this is we let Jesus deal with the rebuke. Because Jesus said to Judas, he said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You're going to do incredible things to impact people's lives, but I'm right here right now. And, 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 and he's, he's, he's fixing the focus of Judas and let Jesus, let Jesus handle the rebuke because he is going to sort it all out in the end. I mean, I, people ask me, you know, well, what, what should I do with this? How should I behave? What, you know? It's not my job as your, your pastor is to give you the word of God and let the word of God and the Holy Spirit within you shape how you make those decisions from a kingdom perspective. You don't come here for me to tell you how to think. You don't come here for me to tell you how to vote. You don't come here for me to tell you what to do with your money and what to do with your kids. You come here because I'm gonna give you the word of God and that shapes your character. The decisions you make come out of that character. I gotta stop. I'm gonna start preaching at us. So then, so yeah, that's Mary's worship. So Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And so when Jesus saw her weeping, I'm back in John 11 now, the Jews who had come with her also, also, were also weeping and uh, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. I, I, I wore those two words out last week. You can go watch that. Um, but it says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying? I mean, there you go. You see it. There's people, there's people who recognize Jesus' love for us even in hard situations, but there's always the skeptic on the sideline. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. So they acted on the faith. Did I not tell you? And they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you've sent me. Jesus calls us to faith. Because there are times our situations don't look good. I mean, they look overwhelming. The odds are stacked against us. But Jesus is always reminded, did I not tell you? Did I not tell you that I've overcome the world? Did I not tell you that in this life you're going to have trials and tribulation and pain? And did I not tell you that? And did I not tell you that I've overcome the world? Did I not tell you that I've gone to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and I'll receive you to myself? He's calling us to faith even when the situation doesn't look like he can do anything. I mean, that situation was dire. I mean, Lazarus had been dead four days, and Jesus had already said, this illness doesn't lead to death, but this happened so the Son of God might be glorified. And he's saying, did, did, let me remind you of what I told you. And so I would just say, take your situation and let Jesus remind you of what he has said. 
He didn't promise to keep us from pain. He promised to be present in our pain. He didn't promise to keep us out of the battles. He promised to fight them for us. And so that means we're going in with them. So I would just, my, my challenge to you in that is just don't lose faith. And we can lose a lot of things, but it's our decision, it's our choice to hold on to faith. In Hebrews 10, the author says, don't throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. What is our confidence? Our confidence is our faith. Our faith in what? Our faith in Jesus. Why is our faith in Jesus? Because he was crucified and resurrected for us. So we hold on to that confidence. We don't let go. Even when it's overwhelming, we say, Jesus, I still trust you. I mean, I just I was thinking about a situation yesterday and I was just feeling overwhelmed. And man, I just had to just start saying, Jesus, I trust you. And I, I, I even got to the point where I'm saying the words of Job. Even if you kill me, I'm still going to trust you. You ain't taking that from my hands. And so keep that faith. And then Jesus steps in front of the tomb and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. He had called him. Jesus calls us to life. I mean, life that is truly life. Because, see, we, we, we're scientifically, physically, we're alive. I mean, we're breathing oxygen, but, but really what we're doing is we're just existing. I mean, we're, we're, we're spiritually dead because, because of sin. Let, let, let me read to you just some scripture uh, to, to show us our situation. This is Romans chapter 5. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That he's speaking of Adam. So all the way back in the garden, when Adam sinned, Adam fell, humanity's connection with God was broken. All of mankind was broken. And because of one man's trespass, death reigned through Adam. We are all offspring of Adam. But it, then he says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, so the law shows us our need for a savior. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus calls us to life because of our sin situation. We're born into it. It's inherent in our nature. And that death reigned because of that one act of disobedience throughout humanity. But Jesus is one act on the cross. And he can call us to life because he can give us that life. And in Colossians chapter 2, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I hear some people talk about Jesus being a pacifist. I just don't see how Jesus can be a pacifist when he defeated death and defeated hell. I just, I, I just don't see it. The problem is Jesus didn't do it in the way we expected. I mean, go back to Judas. I mean, Judas had a thought that, that okay, Jesus, you establish your kingdom and I can be the treasure of a whole kingdom. Many of the people in the first century when Jesus hit the scene, they expected a political messiah. 
Because Rome was ruling over Israel at the time. And so they expected this Messiah is going to come in. He's going to take down Rome. And now we can be free again. Jesus was not just freeing Israel. He was freeing mankind from the penalty of sin. And the way he did it was three nails and a cross. But he took our sin and he nailed it to the cross. He canceled the debt because he is the only one worthy and capable of covering our sin. So he covers our sin through his death and he defeats the enemy. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a defeated enemy that Jesus handled the cross. But that's who we were following in our deadness and our, in our trespasses and sins. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all, that's all of us, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all on level footing in this thing called death and sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of, his, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace you have been saved. So he didn't just save us, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So by grace, we receive this life out of death. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's simply we ask for it. We simply say, Jesus, I need you. And we, we complicate the fool out of salvation because we love putting barriers in front of people. Nowhere in scripture does it say you get yourself cleaned up, you figure out your mess. When you realize what you've done and you figure out a way to get out of it, then I'll take you back in. Then I'll, then I'll love you. No, this is, this is how we're saved. But what does it say in Romans 10? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's this connection of our heart and our mouth. It's the belief, it's the faith, and then the confession of that faith. And we're simply called to live by this, by this faith. Jesus calls us into life. We're physically alive, but this body's going to die. This body's going to give out. But you and I are created body, mind, and spirit, or soul. And that soul, that spirit, is eternal in the presence and the image of God. And he calls us to life so that we may have eternal life in him and through him. But we get that through grace. We ask him for that. We confess that Jesus, you're Lord. And we believe that God raised, us, raised him from the dead. And he also, that's why we celebrate baptism. Look at that. You're buried with Christ in death. So we share in his death and you're raised to walk in new life. That's the resurrection life. That's the power of the resurrection that happened on the third day. And he calls us into the same life. But we've got to reconcile the heart and the, and the mouth in this. And I, I think that the challenge is, is we can be living but not really living. We can be saved but not really 
walking in that. Because let me, let me finish this out. Because it says that Jesus, in verse 44, the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus calls us to freedom. I mean, Lazarus was alive, but he's still bound in the, in the burial clothes. I, I don't know how he got out of the tomb. It, it had to be the spirit of God moving him because he was completely bound up. I mean, everything, think, think, think of, they didn't do the mummification process, but they wrapped them tightly in linen, and then they would anoint the body with herbs and spices for burial, and then, and then he's, he's having to get out. And Jesus sees him come out, and he says, unbind him and let him go. Let him live free. So many of us, we give a confession of faith, and, and we confess it with our mouth, but are we really believing in our heart? I struggled with this for a long time. I mean, I, was like, I confessed with my mouth, but is my heart right? Is my, you know, am I really saved? And I just struggled with this. You know, and I grew up in a system that, that was like, you sin, you lose your salvation. So I felt like I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. And then I was like, well, man, if God's a good and loving God, why does he keep kicking me out and then let me back in? Keep, you know, it's just like, that doesn't make sense. And, and, and what I reconciled is that once I'm saved, man, God says, I, I'll, nothing can take you out of my hand. But what I found is I don't always live like I'm living in his hand. I'm still bound up in things. I still deal with things. But Jesus, this wasn't a suggestion to unbind him and let him go. It was a command. And Jesus has commanded our freedom. And, and, and listen, he does that in different ways. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, as we grow in Christ, we all mature at different rates. And there's areas in our life that, that we struggle with. And I mean, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's an example. Um, I know people that they gave their life to Christ, the confession of faith. They were saved and, and, and they were struggling with addiction. And they asked God, God, would you remove this addiction from my life? And boom, he took it away instantly. They said, I've never had a craving. And it's just, it was miraculous. I sit with people who have given their life to Christ and they do have a daily struggle with addiction. Is it the same Lord? Yes. But he works it differently in all of us, and it's hard to prescribe that this is how you should be growing. I mean, we, we talked about, he says, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. The circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. But he says in the New Testament, there's a circumcision of the heart. It's cutting the flesh away from the heart. I remember doing a message not long after we planted the church on circumcision, which every guy was uncomfortable anyway, you know, but I came out with a sword and, and guys, you could tell they're like, I picked the wrong day to come to church. And, and so I had this sword and, and, and I said, sometimes, you know, when God is cutting on our heart, he can cut big chunks off. I mean, he can just like that addiction, just, he slices it off and you never have a craving, and we, we always want him to just, just take it away. Just take the pain away. Take the addiction away. Take the stress away. Take the worry away. Take, the, take it all away. Take the sickness away, Jesus. But sometimes he's not working on us with a sword. Sometimes he's working on us with a scalpel. And he's taking little pieces here and little pieces here. And ultimately what he's doing is he's, he's carving us into his image. Because he desires for us to live free. 
And the question is, is what are we, how are we living in freedom? Because freedom is it's taking off and putting on, right? And, and in Colossians 3, it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, and the knowledge after the image of its creator. So God is working on our heart through our freedom process, our growth process, our maturity process to make us look more like him. And, and, and so freedom is changing clothes. And, and then freedom also, I love Hebrews 12, one and two. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Freedom happens in relationship. The writer of Hebrews is saying, since you have these cloud of witnesses, that's Hebrews 11, when he's talking about these men and women who held the faith through all of the trying circumstances. It's not that they, see, we, we call that the heroes of the faith. It's, they're not the heroes here. They're not the heroes in the story. It is God. That every person in the Bible was flawed, just like you and I. They're broken, just like you and I. They wrestle and struggle, just like you and I. But this is not a story about how good man is. It's about how good our God is. But he's saying, since you have these witnesses around you that can testify how good God is, then we can walk in freedom. So for us, in this context, you have people around you in church that love you, that care for you, that coach you, that want to grow you and build you up and see you succeed. When we lean into those relationships, that's how we can grow in freedom. What does it look like? He says, lay aside every weight and sin. There's a difference in those two. There are sins that we still commit in our life that we're called to lay aside. And there are weights in our life that I would say these weights, they're not sins, but they're hindrances. Like I, there, there's things that I still am asking God to work on me with that it's not sin, but it's just, God is just keeping me from the fullness of your glory and fullness of following you. And he said, freedom is laying that aside so you can run unbound in my plan for you. And then people go, well, I'm, I'm not perfect. I, no, you're not. And I'm not either. But are we submitting to a process of letting him change our life? And the question for us to wrestle with is not, you know, looking at other people and comparing, well, I'm growing better than they are. I'm not com committing the same type of sin. I'm not carrying the same type of weight they are. You know, where, where are you? Are you growing? Are you changing? Are you looking more like Jesus? Because ultimately, Jesus is calling us to himself. I remember... Years ago, I was doing a funeral, and you know, I was I was praying like, God, what what do you what do you want me to share in this funeral? And, and I just overwhelmingly felt John eleven. And I'm like, man, that just sounds insensitive, you know. I mean, there's grief and there's pain and there's mourning, and and I'm going to teach that Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. And so I thought, well, I won't teach all of that. I'll just kind of use parts of John 11. And man, I'm telling you, there was conviction that hit my heart. He says, you're going to teach it all. And I was like, well, God, show me something. Give me some revelation in this that's going to bring hope. And he did, because Jesus was standing in a little town in Bethany, outside of a tomb of a dead man. And he called Lazarus out. And what God showed me in this is that Jesus called Lazarus to where he was. When this body of mine gives out, Jesus is gonna call me to where he is. 
because he longs to have us with him. And ultimately, he's calling us to himself. He's calling you. And I would just ask you to spend a moment just wrestling with that. What are you calling me to, Jesus? Is it life? Is it trusting him as the resurrected Savior? It doesn't mean you figured it all out. I've been following him for decades, and I still haven't figured out everything. But I trust him. Maybe he's calling you to freedom. What, what's some weights and sins? You just need to say, I'm, I'm laying those aside. Help me, Lord. So it's, it's your response. Let me pray for us. God, we, we humble ourselves before you. And we, we, we put ourselves at your feet. We intentionally say, Jesus, we're here for you. And I ask you to help us with faith. Help us to remember your words and your promises. And help us to stand firm in that faith that you call us to. And God, I ask you to bring people to life. Call people to life today. That you are calling their name to step out of this this life that is shrouded in death into the life that you bought for them on the cross. And I ask you to help us all walk unbound in freedom. Help us to lay aside things. God, there are sins that we hold on to. Help us to crucify those. Help us to lay those aside. God, there's attitudes and behaviors and just things that they're not sin, but they just, they just get in the way. And I'm just asking you to help us to, to cut those out of our life. And help us to be people who live in this world as a reflection of your life and your freedom and your grace and your mercy because this world desperately needs you. So thank you for calling us to you. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.